Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pollain. I'm a service design and innovation consultant, educator, and writer. My guest today is Senongo Akpem, a designer, illustrator, and the founder of Pixel Fable, a collection of interactive Afro-futurist stories. For the past 15 years, he has specialized in collaborating with clients across the world on flexible, impactful digital experiences. He's currently the design director at Constructive, a social impact design agency. The child of a Nigerian father and a Dutch-American mother, Sonongo grew up in Nigeria, lived in Japan for almost a decade, and now calls New York City home. Living in constantly shifting cultural and physical spaces has given him unique insight into the influence of culture on communication and creativity. Now, normally I wouldn't go into someone's sort of background and where they've lived quite so much, but it's important in this episode because Sonongo has just written a book called Cross-Cultural Design, published by Alistair Part. Sonongo, welcome to Power of Ten. Thank you for having me. So I'm guessing this is partly scratching your own itch, but it's also because you've experienced a lot of times when you've been flummoxed by someone else's culture. Um, and most notably, actually sort of at the end of the book, but actually in the, in the piece that you published on a list apart, um, you talk about a story of when you went to Japan or when you were first in Tokyo trying to buy a metro ticket. Was that the sort of genesis of it or was that just a really good story to start with? The story itself is good. Uh, it was a pretty formative memory you know experience for me um i was a college student it was my second to last year of school and uh you know got the opportunity to um do a study abroad program through the university of michigan and so you know i'm just kind of a fish out of water and showed up in kyoto <laughs> i remember arriving on one of the airport buses at like you know 9 p.m mm. and they unloaded my stuff and they handed me a piece of paper uh, like i said you know this was before the internet uh, on your phone, essentially. Um, and so it was a printout of, you know, whatever it was those days. And they're like, get on this train and then take this bus and you'll be at school. As if it was a printout in Japanese or with it? <laughs> no, it was in English. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, we did take some uh, intensive Japanese classes. Um, you know, so I had been studying the language pretty much five days a week for, you know, about two and a half months at Michigan. But that doesn't prepare you for anything except to know how much you don't know. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, very surreal, uh, kind of walking down into the, the train station and just kind of standing there, you know, it was like maybe uh, nine o'clock in the morning or something like that, like rush hours done. And there wasn't anybody there. And I was just lost. And it took watching these two little old ladies figure out for themselves how to buy a ticket. And I kind of looked over their shoulders to figure out how to use the machines and, you know, push which buttons and figure out how much the tickets cost and so on. You know, I've lived overseas in many you know different places, but not being able to do the simplest kind of like electronic thing, you know, it's a, it makes for a great story. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I've had exactly the same experience when going to both Kyoto and, and Tokyo. And a friend of mine is just an, an ex-colleague of mine. She's just moved to uh, Tokyo. She wrote, uh, her name's Rebecca Bush. She just wrote a really nice series actually about, you know, running workshops and facilitating workshops in Japan and what it taught her about her own biases and, and cultural norms, right? Because she had that moment of, all the things that about reading the room and reading people's body language and stuff that she, you know, you assume from a Western perspective is very kind of normalized, which is completely different in Japan. And I've often found it's not so much the big things like, I don't know, where you go shopping and so forth. It's lots and lots of small things that make up the sort of cultural differences as well. 
And you talk about this quite a lot in the book. You talk about sort of culturally responsive design. So people obviously used to the idea of responsive as in you know, yes. mobile and, and so forth. So tell us what you mean by that. I'm kind of going through the book backwards, I know, but I, I, let's, okay. let's start there. So the idea is that as human beings, we'll often default to certain patterns that we're familiar with, you know, ways of structuring content, ways of designing user interfaces, you know, all of those mental models that we are familiar with. And culturally responsive design asks us to take a step back, essentially, and say, what are the ways that we can make our digital experiences, the ones that we create as designers, as content strategists, much more malleable and allow them to fit different people's perspectives, different people's lived experiences. That I think that methodology and that way of thinking you know, has been pushed very strongly in the accessibility movement, and that's obviously great. However, there are other cultural things that we, you know, can take into account. Um, so, you know, one very interesting anecdote that I found when I was doing research for this book, and that's actually in uh, the book as well, is the right to left and left to right experience. And you have a, a language, let's say Arabic, where we will, you know, using the power of CSS and the power of, uh, you know, HTML, can do right to left experiences and just make sure that that's all set up correctly. And Without thinking about it, you may also assume that you should do the exact same thing for a video interface. So make the, the triangle for the play button go the other way instead um, and point uh, left instead of right. However, because that mental model has been set since the time of the Walkman, essentially, that, uh, you know, the play and pause and fast forward and rewind buttons point, you know, from left to right, it's not necessary for you to localize and like adapt that experience for a right to left reader. They just know what to do, you push the button. Um, and so those are the types of things that when you are creating culturally responsive experiences, you need to either research and learn, or uh, if you do know them already, you need to design for them rather than to discount them because they don't match your mental models. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's quite a few other things in there. I mean, you talk a lot about typography in the book, but you also at the beginning there is a lot that's kind of, you could loosely draws upon the whole sort of inclusive design boom there's a lot about kind of really sort of understanding uh people's mental models there's a lot about understanding um about being sort of culturally sensitive and the things there that i think if you've got a some kind of understanding and already you're kind of thinking about inclusive design you're probably going to find it fairly easy to extend out into this idea of sort of cross-cultural or culturally sensitive design and so i just said culturally sensitive so i wanted to make that distinction or ask you that why cross-cultural versus, say, just being culturally sensitive or culturally inclusive? Am I just coming up with a kind of different phrase, or is there a specific thing about being cross-cultural? I mean, I think it's all part and parcel. Um, the cross-cultural idea, I think, gets more into how we need to take active steps to make sure that what we design works across different people's perspectives. I can be culturally sensitive in terms of I'm just going to make sure that people don't feel bad or uh, I'm going to be sensitive to their needs. But what that often strikes me as the, you know, when people give the apology, especially politicians, and they're like, um, <laughs> I'm sorry if you were offended. Yeah, exactly. It's I, I didn't actually offend you, but if you were offended, I'm sorry about it, but not really sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sensitive to your concerns. Um, and so I think that's great. And you should be sensitive to people's concerns. Uh, but it's probably, you know, for the design industry anyway, uh, when we're talking about how many hundreds of millions of people we have coming online 
you know, every month, every year, uh, we need to probably take an additional active step beyond that. Yeah, and so that was the how I kind of read. I guess it, that's why I also sort of went to the end with the sort of culturally responsive design was that the cross-cultural part wasn't just about being sort of sensitive to one person's culture, which of course can end up being insensitive to someone else's, but it was this idea of flexing and being able to kind of uh, include many cultures and shift and change depending on on the kind of situation. Right? That's right. And I think that there's a number of things uh, which, you know, again, we talk about um, in, in the book where you can build patterns and systems to allow you to do that. That's not dependent on like understanding one particular culture. Um, you know, so another example is I think in the, the LA Times, uh, they were explaining a change in public policy uh, that allowed people to cook more food at home and sell it which seems like a very small thing, but people who you know want to go into business for themselves and maybe they're cooking meat pies or something like that, there were limits on how much they could produce for themselves or how much they could sell on the street or whatever. And in explaining that, they talked about banh mi, uh, just a you know, Vietnamese dish or whatever, but then they had a little like tool tip to explain what it was. And that may work for banh mi, but it's also going to work for any Nigerian food that they talk about in, you know, next year's episode of, you know, what laws are we changing now or you know, a travel <laughs> yeah. blog or something like that. So we yeah. can build those patterns and then just make sure that we fill it with the, the culturally relevant information. And there's some surprising things, I think, also. I described your kind of background and your various places you've lived in the world and now you're in New York. And what was interesting, I think anyone who's traveled or lived, I've lived in other countries too and, and still do, I guess. So I see, and that's a thing, right? I don't, in some respects, I don't really think about the fact I live in another country anymore because I've, yeah. I've lived in Germany uh, enough times and my wife's German. But I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting about my uh, colleague Becky's uh, piece was you, know, you suddenly become aware of how many other cultures there are within your own culture and within your own, in your own place. And you, you gave this amazing stat in the book about, um, you say, uh, Maybe you've been asked, as an example, maybe you've been asked to perform an interface audit on a website for US-based dentists, of whom about 24% are immigrants and 4% are non-citizens. That was amazing to me. So, I mean, that's just a kind of good example of when you start to actually dig into it, the idea that, you know, the majority of people are, well, maybe the majority, but, you know, the norm is going to kind of suit everyone, uh, really falls apart, particularly in sort of very multicultural cities. I mean, I used to live in London too, which is, is very, very mixed culture. Yeah. So you have these different dimensions that you talk about. Um, maybe you could kind of describe some of these or all of these in the book because they're, they're kind of very useful ways, sort of like lenses through which to view cross-cultural design. So the idea of cultural dimensions was something pioneered by Geert Hofstede, who was a cultural anthropologist, and he worked um, in big business, IBM and so on, for many years. It's important to have some historical context for this as well. In the time that he was doing a lot of his work was right around the time when the idea of globalization was first really hitting us as a planet. You know, so in the, the 60s and 70s, when, you know, companies were starting to become actually global and they needed their workforces to also become global, this type of research about what it meant for different groups of people to work together and interact became a lot more important for companies. You know, they needed to make money and still be able to do this work. And so, he looked very specifically at how different cultures worked and how they organized themselves and how then they related to others. And the best way that he came up to do that was these cultural dimensions. And um, so there's power distance, which is the first one. And this means the separation between those who have power in a society and those who don't. 
a very common example is, do you call your boss by their first name or do you refer to them as, you know, Mrs. So-and-so? And, you know, the way that we treat politicians as well, do we put them on pedestals or are they men and women of the people? The next one is uh, individualism versus collectivism. So societies that value the individual, you know, the rugged Marlboro man aesthetic versus the we are a group and we operate together, uh, which is, you know, very much uh, as I found in my time in Japan, the way that Japanese culture is. There's femininity versus masculinity. And this doesn't refer to the, I think, ways that we think about feminine and masculine, you know, in mass culture, but much more about like how people care for and, um, you know, value each other. And there's uncertainty avoidance. So, you know, how willing you are to tolerate things that are not set in stone, long-term versus short-term orientation, uh, how far you look to the future, do you value what's happening now versus planning out quite far? Um, and lastly, indulgence versus restraint, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's like, how much do you spend on your own personal happiness? So I wanted to take those cultural dimensions and then apply them to the practice of design. You know, what does it mean to build an interface for a more collectivist society? You know, maybe you use language like, you know, we do blah, blah, blah. Or you have pictures of people with their families instead of, uh, you know, a solitary individual on the top of a mountain going hiking or something like that. And so I think that they provide a really interesting way to look at what we can do in design, as long as we're able to identify the, the societies, the cultures that we're designing for, and like where they fall on those, you know, the, the spectrums. So how do you, I mean, it was interesting, I was just thinking about the kind of gender one as well, because I know you, in, and in the book, you make the point that, that you just made, which is this was written, or well, those dimensions were developed a while ago, and they don't really necessarily fit how we, we're talking about gender, especially right now. But you use an example of SheFit, where you're, I don't know, what, uh, SheFit is a custom sports bra e-commerce site. That's right. And, you know, you've got these, you, you show, I describe it for people. So there's a, the homepage has a kind of says, join the sisterhood, get rewards. And there's a picture of women in sports gear, uh, wearing sports bras. And they're all kind of either doing sort of fist pumps or kind of, yes. you know, victory signs and stuff. I'll let you describe, what is that saying? and why that might be something you want to think about. So I think in terms of that, like what that specifically was starting to look at was how we, you know, display competition. You know, what are the kind of rewards systems that we build into a UI? Now, one of the interesting things about the SheFit site is not only does the page um, that I'm identifying in here talk about, like, if you join this sisterhood, you get rewards. Um, so there's some kind of like point system. But then there's also a big block on the, that same page that says, like, get 500 points on us free just for joining. Yeah, 500 um, crowns. Yeah, that's right. The crowns. There you go. Right. So it's even more kind of like elite or, you know, elevated. And then there's also other like, you know, a little button kind of in the bottom corner talking about rewards. And so the whole interface is built around this idea that, you know, health and fitness can be a healthy competition thing. You can participate with your friends and although there's points involved and you can get these crowns and you can, you know, win stuff, it's not the solitary venture. Um, you don't have to be out there like running a marathon by yourself. You can be there with your, your sisters. And so it's just a very interesting way of framing unhealthy competition in a very healthy way. Although, you know, what's interesting about it and the reason why I kind of picked that one out was also it sort of stuck out for me. It was this idea that, you know, competition and comparison are a sort of core part of the user experience and that, in those dimensions, they are 
traditionally considered masculine qualities, right? Is that, you know, that's why I was kind of pulling it out because it's one of those things where you're not really talking about gender, but you're talking about the traditionally perceived ideas of, of gender or the characteristics of gender rather and, and kind of how they play out. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, and another interesting thing is that because all of this is on a spectrum, you know, these the kind of cultural variables, it's never an all or nothing thing. And so you'll often have you know, societies that fall, you know, somewhere in the middle. But then you also have other uh, variables, which in many ways compete. Um, it's a very tangled web, as they say. And so you can have a very individualistic society. And, you know, that may kind of influence the way you design things. And then you have a, a more feminine uh, society as well. And that's also going to, like, some of those things will, will be part of it. And the last point that I'll make about that is, and I say this as well in cross-cultural design, that although Hofstede's research was very much focused on national culture, you know, what we're seeing today, especially with you know, the way that the internet has blossomed into this weird, uh, slightly scary thing is the idea of national cultures, while it's of course still valid and still true, is I think starting to break down as people form these smaller tribes that have their own kind of like cultural characteristics, both online and offline. And so you know, Reddit as a great example of a completely country agnostic country, uh, you know, culture, if you will, yeah, that exists yeah. online. Twitter is another one. But, you know, even other examples like the Shifit, you know, they're forming a culture which is independent, essentially, of, you know, the, the national culture that they're from. I mean, it's interesting because we're living in an age where there's this amazing juxtaposition and dissonance in the sense that yet on the one hand, the internet or connecting everyone together has created these niches that have Groups of people are like-minded and it doesn't matter, you know, if I was into um, miniature horses for, I don't know why I came up with that, but there we go. Um, you know, in my, in my small town in Germany, I might find one or two other people if I'm lucky, but, you know, worldwide, I find my kind of my tribe and my group and then, and then we can kind of dive into that online. And, you know, you get that typically in popular culture, right? You get you, people, Trekkies and the whole thing, right? Yeah. And at the same time, we're living in an age where everyone's kind of putting up, literally putting up walls or kind of, Defederalizing in some respects or deglobalizing and, and kind of putting up barriers. And um, although we're speaking at the time of the COVID 19 coronavirus yeah. kind of outbreak, where that suddenly reminded everyone that that doesn't respect any boundaries at all. Yeah. So, you know, you've got this kind of thing. And like, are there any examples that you have where, you know, well, there's two things I guess I'm interested in. One is where a brand has kind of rolled out globally and completely failed in another culture because they haven't done this. Oh, there's a million of these. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, let me rephrase that. Do you have a good story? Or <laughs> and, and what might they have done differently? There is the classic story of the IKEA catalog in Saudi Arabia, uh, which is probably slightly apocryphal, but it's a good story. Uh, so, you know, we can go with it. Essentially, for those who don't know, there was an uproar some years ago where um, IKEA had produced a catalog for the West and it was pictures of, you know, a mom and a dad and a kid or whatever in their Ikea home with nice furniture and it's all very nicely put together. We all know the aesthetic, you know, and in the catalog and the pictures for the Saudi market, they had photoshopped out the mom. And so it was just the dad and the kid for cultural reasons, you know, the you know, showing of, uh, of women in that way, perhaps, uh, you know, more, skin and uh, is culturally acceptable and so on wasn't good for their market so instead of like just take some more pictures (laughs) at that photo shoot 
you've already paid the photographer, you've already paid the models, you have everything set up, like just take some photographs of the guy and his kid. And <laughs> what they did instead was they paid a designer to like Photoshop out the woman. Uh, okay. So, I mean, there's other examples like that. I know there's one from, there was a, a Microsoft example where they, I think they darkened uh, a white person's skin to make them look black for like a, you know, it was all these types of things where if they had just done a little bit more upfront, you know, I think they, they would have not had that cultural faux pas. Um, if they had just chosen a different photograph, you know, or cropped it slightly differently, then their catalog would have gone unnoticed and it would have worked brilliantly for, you know, the Saudi market and then also the Danish market or whatever it was. There was a university, and I think it might have been in France, but I could be wrong, it could have been in the States, that did this thing where they also had a, they had a kind of picture of a load of students and uh, they darkened the skin of some of them because they wanted to make it come across more multicultural. And it's it's such a kind of weird loop to have got into, which is we want to be more diverse, and yet we're going to <laughs> so we're going to Photoshop people to skin darker instead yeah. of actually being more diverse, right? And and then of course, it, someone who was in one of those you know photos said, "Hey, you know what's going on?" And it kind of outed them, and it, it backfired. All of which kind of says, and both those examples are good examples of doing the work up front, right? Of being prepared, because it, it seems to me that you know part of what you're saying in the book is not so much. It's not so much the kind of design for every single culture you possibly can, right? It, it's kind of set up your system, set up your way of thinking, set up your process to be prepared and be resilient. Is, is that kind of fair to say? Is that? A- yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it. And, you know, there's so many things that we have to do as designers, so many things that we're trying to account for in our heads and icon sets and color schemes. And it's just like, you know, the workload, the cognitive workload is so high now uh, for the work that we do. You know, we're we're falling back on design systems, which like spell out, you know, by the half pixel where we should be placing things. So it's okay to like plan ahead. <laughs> it's okay to think <laughs> about these things, you know, beforehand so that, you know, uh, like we've all experienced, it's, you know, it's two hours before you go live and you still have like a 50 item punch list of things to do. And you're like, oh crap, I need to find a culturally relevant image I'm just going to darken somebody's face because I don't have any time. You know, so planning the things ahead of time, that's, yeah. Um, and so I hopefully, you know, this book and um, there are other ones as well uh, will help people like figure out where they should be planning ahead of time. The classic argument is going to be, you know, you, you know, as a designer, that you would have probably had this discussion where you said, you know, we need to spend some time working on this up front. And someone said, we just don't have the time and budget for that. It's not really so important. That's not a big part of our market and so forth. What's your response to that? I would say that that's going to come up all the time. And I can't think of very many clients or managers, um, business owners or whatever, who are going to be like, oh, that's a great idea. You have free reign to just go and do whatever you need to do. And here's a bag of money. Have at it. You know, Apple, maybe. But even then, they're pretty cutthroat in how they approach their business and their, and their bottom lines. So there's always going to be those kind of like push and pull situations with uh, your managers and with clients and so on. And just like we want to make sure that they understand if they are, for example, a museum and they're launching a new website and they don't account for accessibility, they might get sued, which, you know, there was just a Supreme Court case in the United States where Domino's lost at the highest court of the land. Ah, that was the case of the the blind guy who, who sued them, right, for their sign not yeah, being... Like, yeah. You know, how many millions of dollars did they spend 
when they could have just paid, uh, you know, a group of accessibility professionals a little bit of extra money to do the work. It, it's amazing. So I would say like, there's always going to be that for designers. And the point is just to, you know, make sure that you are clear about what you can actually do. Um, you know, if it's only going to be localizing icon sets, like, you know, be honest about that. Don't pitch it as we're going to make the entire thing culturally responsive. You know, it's, if you can't translate an entire website, that's okay. You know, choose the one page or the two pages that are going to be appropriate for your different audiences and translate those. So I think, yeah, for designers, just being honest about like what you can actually do and then pitching that to, you know, your clients or your stakeholders is probably a way that you're going to get stuff done. So in that trade-off, what, you know, if there was like sort of one, two or three things that you think, well, okay, you know, there's always time and budget constraints, you know, what would be the one big thing that kind of people or a couple of big things that you think, if you're going to do anything, do this? <laughs> Research. Uh, <laughs> I knew it was coming up. So I thought you might say that. <laughs> because if you, if you haven't done any research and you get to the, ooh, I'm going to like you know, localize my icons, you have no idea what you're talking about. So just, just don't, you know, just save your time. Doing guerrilla research, really, really just simple upfront, like I'm going to talk to people. Um, something that we've done before is, uh, you know, in order to localize a site into uh, a different language, just put out a call on LinkedIn and say, I need the user experience professionals who speak X language. Is there anybody out there can help me? You know, I'll give you a few hundred bucks or you know, whatever your, you know, your rate is. Just start with at least some like frame of reference for your research. And then you can start to make, uh, you know, your design decisions after that. I mean, the good thing about that is, especially if you record those things, you know, if you, if you do a kind of a testing session or validation session and record that, that stuff becomes incredibly compelling for making the case to stakeholders of why, you know, why they should be putting a bit more time and effort into this. Cause you know, you see someone massively struggling to use a site or you see someone just going, Oh my God, this is so offensive. That's kind of triggers response often quicker than a designer saying, do you know, I think it'd be nice if we did. So listen, we're coming up to time. As I mentioned uh, before we started recording, you know, the, the show is called uh, Power of Ten after the Eames film, Powers of Ten, which is all about the kind of relative size of things in the universe. And it's really about design operating at kind of different levels and um, how small things can have an outsized difference or big things going on in the world. Um, we're speaking right now, everyone's working remotely, for example. So the coronavirus has kind of suddenly made everyone realize what it's like to be like me, which is to work remotely most of the time. And that kind of has a ripple effect down to sort of individual touch points. So I imagine there's a lot of people right now who are um, realizing how terrible their in-house corporate video conferencing tools are, for example. So um, what one small thing can you think of that's either undervalued or um, underappreciated that has a big effect on things and is well-designed or one small thing that really should be redesigned that would have a sort of outsized effect on the world? Um, it's of course a great question. I think that my answer is, you know, much more rooted in the physical world than it is in the, the digital world. And I'll just give you a quick example. Uh, I live in Astoria in Queens, uh, in New York city. And, um, you know, it's, uh, New York still hasn't come to terms with the fact that it's car culture needs to die. There are <laughs> way too many cars on the street. Uh, the police are not proactive at all about ticketing people, um, you know, even the speed cameras and so on. Uh, people can get, you know, 10, 15 tickets. Their cars are not impounded. 
And it's just like we're suffocating in these metal hunks. They just sit there on the street. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a personal kind of peeve of mine about how dangerous it is to walk on the streets. And, you know, a story is no exception. There's a street Broadway, which is, you know, some blocks away. And uh, a few years ago, I was crossing the street. I had the, I had the green. I'm just walking along. It was raining a little bit. You know, I had my umbrella. And this guy almost runs me over in his car. And he didn't see me. You know, so of course I like I whip my umbrella out and I'm like banging on his car, screaming at him, swearing at him. He almost <laughs> of course, me, because you, know? you live in New York. Of course. Right? It's like, it's my right to cross the street when I want to. And I have the, you know, I have the green light. And of course he was like upset, but also he knew that he was in the wrong. But what do you do in that situation? What do I like ask him to get out of the car and we fight? Like there's no upside for anybody. Um, so he drives away and, you know, now I'm frustrated. I walk across the street you know, everybody's staring. They're like, man, that guy almost got hit by a car. Well, you know, a few months ago, I'm walking on that same corner and I realized what the Department of Transportation has done is they've got these, they're probably about, you know, a meter and a half, maybe two meters long, these kind of like plastic road bumps that are yellow and black striped, just made out of plastic. And they just drill them down into the asphalt and they've put them at angles so that the car is turning, you know, from Crescent onto Broadway, they can't make that sharp turn anymore. They have to go all the way out and then turn almost at a, you know, 90 degree angle. Um, makes it impossible to just run over somebody as you're cutting the corner. Uh, right, because you've got that little bit of sort of buffer space. Yeah. And so even if you go at full speed, like you're going to hit that bump. Um, and so it's just a small thing, but just adding two of those without changing the light timers, without painting more uh, zebra crossing, it has reduced the speeds at that corner so dramatically that now people are like, oh, I can cross the street when I have the green. So my answer to, you know, the small thing that I would change is just, first of all, more of that. And then, you know, the one step up would be finding ways to just eliminate car parking on streets. I want to plant trees instead of, you know, having a space for these metal hulks. You know, there's all of these small interventions that I think the city can do and they're not doing. Um, mostly because they're so beholden to this mythical car culture. I mean, the majority of people in my neighborhood don't drive and don't have a car. Where are all these cars coming from? They just sit yeah, it's, there. A, it's a generational um, shift. So, yeah. What's it like right now? Uh, so I, well, are you, have you even been outside to see? Is yeah, it quiet somewhat. on the streets? It's, it's getting a lot quieter. I know that they said, you know, train ridership is down 10%. Of course, that probably means that more people are getting in their cars, but <laughs> it's definitely quieter. Um, we'll see. But uh, that's you have to come for Germany. Hour. Lots of uh, psychopaths everywhere here. It's very good. Yeah. And I've heard that Paris is doing a great job as well. I mean, they've managed to reduce their car parking or something like that by 30% over the past 10 years. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, you know, um, one of the so, ways of getting getting rid of cars in the city is to get rid of cars in the city. Everyone forgets that Amsterdam wasn't always like it is now, right? that they made a decision. There was a whole campaign about, it was actually a whole campaign about stop killing our kids that kind of swung public opinion. I think it was in the 60s to switch Amsterdam from a, a car city to a, a cycle city. And and now, you know, because the general thing is obviously people go, yeah, but, you know, we're not Amsterdam. But Amsterdam wasn't always Amsterdam. Exactly. So yeah. that's a very good uh, small thing and a big thing, actually, um, that would have an outsized effect. So um, congratulations on the book. It feels sort of more needed now than ever. You can be found at sinongo.net. Yeah? And uh, also on Twitter, you are sinongo. I'll put all the, the links in the show notes. Uh, Pixel Fable is also Pixel Fable on Twitter, uh, which is really nice to see. I, I'm now I've discovered that I'm going to uh, show that to my daughter. 
Uh, and uh, anywhere else people should look for you? I think that those are probably the big ones. Of course, please, you know, to pick up the book, uh, it's at abookapart.com. And uh, would love to hear people's reactions. And, uh, you know, just email me, hit me up on Twitter, send me a picture you know, of you holding the book, uh, whatever it is. And uh, would love to hear what you think. Thanks so much for being my guest on Power of 10. All right. Thank you. You can find the transcript of Power of 10 on thisishcd.com, uh, where you'll also find the other podcasts on the network. My name is Andy Palane. You'll find me online as A Palane on Twitter and, and most other places, and also palane.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.